Like the office they commemorate, presidential libraries are living institutions. Certainly it is my hope that the Reagan Library will become a dynamic intellectual forum where scholars interpret the past and policymakers debate the future. Welcome to a Reagan Forum, hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. The Center for Public Affairs offers lectures and forums presenting perspectives on important public policy issues of the day from politicians, authors, members of the media, business and military leaders, and more. In this week's A Reagan Forum, we present Brett Baer, a number one best-selling author and award-winning anchor of Fox News Channel's special report with Brett Baer. Brett had previously spoken at the Reagan Library four times, the last time in 2019 for his book Three Days at the Brink, FDR's daring gamble to win World War II, which was part of his three-day series. This time, Brett came to discuss his latest book, to Rescue the Constitution, George Washington and the Fragile American Experiment, which showcases how George Washington rescued the nation and the Constitution three times, first by winning the Revolutionary War, second by presiding over the Constitutional Convention and ushering the Constitution through a ratification process, and third by leading the nation as president in its first years. While at the Reagan Library, he sat down in conversation with Janet Tran, the Reagan Foundation and Institute's director of the Institute's Center for Civics, Education, and Opportunity. Let's listen. Thank you very much. It's really great to be back here. I didn't take the stage cue very well <laughs> at the beginning, but it is awesome to be back here. This is actually the sixth book that I've talked about here. The first mm -hmm. book was about my son's journey with congenital heart defects, and I'm here to tell you that he is doing spectacular. He is... Um, mm -hmm. He is 6'4", and I'm very happy he looks like me because I'm not 6'4", and uh, he's doing great. But we're here to talk history, and I'm really excited about this book, and really thank you very much for uh, doing what uh, John Highbush has done for many, many years, which is have this conversation about something I'm really fired up about. I'm glad we started out about good news from your son, Brett, because these are dizzying and somber times, right? And this is why I'm so thrilled to be able to maybe learn some lessons and where we have some audience questions as well that were submitted. Um, let's start maybe at the, at the end, right, with these farewell addresses that I referred to. Both are incredible pieces of work if you haven't had the chance to listen or read them. But uh, President Washington, he, he warns us uh, to avoid political factions. And uh, President Reagan asked us to reclaim our civic duty. So I'd say pretty good advice, right, from, from both of these gentlemen. Um, but we're not doing so great of a job at following that advice. So maybe we can start with this not so easy question of how do we get there? Yeah. Well, first of all, the farewell address of Washington uh, is really something that everybody should every once in a while just touch base with, look back at, because it was really prescient. And it is read on the Senate floor every February 22nd on Washington's mm -hmm. birthday. It is something that is in the back of my book, printed uh, for everybody to read from beginning to end. In it, as you mentioned, he warns about political partisanship. Uh, he warn warns about political parties. And the quote he says is that uh, if you don't quench it, the fire will consume and overtake um, he was prescient in that because obviously we live in a very divided, divided time. And that has come to pass. 
By the way, he also was concerned about the national debt. Don't think he would be too happy with $33 trillion currently. Um, he was also concerned about foreign entanglements, making sure that we had our own house in order uh, before we took place overseas. He, there was a lot in that speech that other presidents, the 40th president, Dwight D. Eisenhower's farewell address, uh, has echoes of all of that in it. But I think what you're getting at here is, should we be encouraged by looking backwards, or should we be dismal about where we are? And I think what I learned in this process is that the research and the writing led me to the conclusion that dissent is who we are as a country. It's kind of baked in the cake, and we value that principle. Dissent is great. We have to welcome it. But union is what George Washington was trying to get to. And he meshed dissent and union and figured out how to get to common ground and get things done. And so that's sometimes what we're missing. It is happening on Capitol Hill. I try to do this thing on my show called Common Ground, a Democrat and a Republican coming together, talking about what they're working on and not what they're fighting about. Um, but day to day, you don't feel it. And I think that um, if we go back to the beginning and the lessons of the Founding Fathers, that that is something we can pull from every day. That's wonderful. I love that. Dissent is baked into the cake. It's a part of our DNA, right? Um, I want to pull on the thread of uh, the grand tradition of the farewell address, because in your book, you argue that giving the farewell address is actually part of this mm -hmm. grand man's greatest legacy, is actually deciding to deliver this farewell address when the opportunity to never deliver it was was clearly handed to him. Yeah. His greatest thing is when he becomes president that he then doesn't at the end of two terms. He decides I'm not indispensable. And he decides that that's the end. And there is no prescribed term limits at that time. Remember, there is no, at the formation of our country, there is nobody who's writing a note in the Oval Office desk telling him how to do the job. Mm -hmm. There's nobody that is passing the torch. He is the torch. And so at that moment to say, this is it, I'm not indispensable, and for the good of the country, I need to step down and start this farewell address is really something. This book, though, focuses on this soda straw moment it, that I think is overlooked in history books. And that's what each one of these books I've, we've been trying to do. You know, three days in January was the farewell address for Dwight D. Eisenhower, three days before uh, John F. Kennedy's inauguration. Everybody focuses on the military-industrial complex, but as I said, there was a lot in that speech as well about the national debt and working together, uh, other things. Then three days in Moscow, Ronald Reagan and the fall of the Soviet empire uh, was about the overlooked summit between uh, Reagan and Gorbachev, where... Reagan delivers this amazing speech that history kind of overlooked under a uh, bust of Lenin, where he talks to Moscow State University students and tells them communism will never work in Moscow while he's getting a deal on missiles. I mean, that's pretty bold. But that was a moment, a soda straw moment that was overlooked. And then three days at the brink, FDR, Churchill, and Stalin meeting in Tehran, 
That's not the conference that often got talked about. Mm. But at Tehran, they plan D-Day and figure out how the war is going to be won, and that is actually the beginning of the Cold War because Stalin turns his back on, on the whole deal. So it was you know, the middle of the Cold War, the end of the Cold War, then I, it was the Star Wars trilogy, and I went back to the beginning, and there's the three of the Cold War. And then to rescue the Republic was Ulysses S. Grant and the fragile American Union. And this is 1876, when Grant as president, who is overlooked as president, was really one of our most consequential presidents because he managed to hold the country together from falling back into a second civil war. So those are the things that I was looking for, these soda straw moments that I think enrich the narrative to be able to put people in the room and have this reading like you're, you're there, you know it, you kind of get the characters. This is a look at the soda straw moment after the Revolutionary War, the British are defeated, which in, in and of itself is a, a miracle, which we'll talk about. But at that moment, the country is falling apart. It's held together under the Articles of Confederation, largely, um, and they just don't have teeth. And there's no, you can't levy taxes, tax collectors are getting beaten up, there's rebellions, states are fighting each other. In fact, a large portion of the population says, you know what, forget it. Let's go back to British rule. It's just not worth it. And that at that very moment, much could have happened. Yeah, yeah, and it could have happened. At that moment in May of 1787, the Constitutional Convention is called in Philadelphia, and they tap the guy who commanded revolutionary forces, George Washington, to be the head of that. And I argue in this book, without his particular temperament, without his particular leadership at that time, the dissent in that room to try to hammer out a document. Originally, they were just going to go around the edges and tweak the Articles of Confederation. And he said, no, it needs to be ripped up, root and branch, and start over. And in those four months, in a very hot Philadelphia room, now called Independence Hall, they hammer out this document that to this day is the greatest single legal document providing liberty to any country in any part of our world. It is uh, the greatest contribution to Western civilization, right, that our country has given. Um, the historical record states that George Washington spoke how many words during this convention? <laughs> Not many at all, yeah. very few. Yeah, very few, but he's, you know, you, you really do paint a picture for us. It's truly a conversational book. You really do feel like you're in the room. That, you know, he's out there every night lobbying, you know, hearing out people's grievances, and he's so instrumental during this really fragile time. I'm so fascinated that the historical record on George Washington is actually one of the few cases where the truth is so much better than what we learned in school. And I wonder if you have some reflections in your research um, about maybe the aspects of his character that stood out to you. His temperament obviously was a lead. He, every time he was asked to do something, he answered the call. He was all about service, that the country was bigger than him. He didn't want to. He desperately wanted to just go back to Mount Vernon and be with Martha and her two children who he adopted. Um, but each time, he answered the call. And, you know, talking about his temperament, the reason I brought out these pages is because I love coming to the Reagan Library because there's always a President Reagan moment that fits. So I looked this up, um, and this is George Washington's 250th birthday, 
President Reagan's in his second year of his presidency, and he gives an address at Mount Vernon. By the way, I got this tie from Mount Vernon. It's my Mount Vernon, George Washington tie. Anyway, President, Washington, uh, President Reagan says this, if one word could describe all this man was and all he meant, it might be indispensable. Had he not lived, perhaps some other great leader would have appeared to liberate the colonies and establish our republic. We'll never know. We'll never know. <laughs> well, well, we know that Washington was there, that he did fulfill this destiny, and that he did it with such a skill and perfection, he seemed to be carrying out a divine plan for America. Are we keeping the faith with his trust in us? The problems we face today don't require the kind of sacrifices Washington and his men made that Christmas night on, Delaw on the Delaware, but they do require us to give us a sustain our best efforts to believe in each other, to believe in the God who has blessed us and will help us to rebuild our country. <laughs> Not bad. Not bad. Great. I tried to do a whole audio book like that, and it just, it just did not work. You know? Exhausting. Well, you can only say well so many times. Well, there you go again. That's also not bad. <laughs> uh, I, but to I, his point, the indispensable man in the room, I think that that is really what you come to the conclusion of. He did not say many words at all in the Constitutional Convention. However, he had this thoughtful presence. He wasn't the elite scholar that Thomas Jefferson was. He wasn't the intellectual rigor of James Madison or John Adams. He wasn't the backslapping charisma or genius of Ben Franklin, and he surely wasn't the fiery speaker of Alexander Hamilton. But what he was was this thoughtful presence who with every step provided gravitas. He was tall, he was 6'2", and at that time it was like a statuesque figure. And he walked in the room and he commanded that respect, not only because of his time running and uh, commanding the revolutionary forces, and that was a miracle in and of itself considering the forces that he had, but because of how he approached things. It was very thoughtful and it was listen first. Listen first to all the sides. Figure out how you can get them to agree on something. We're talking about big issues in these four months, big issues that we still deal with today. States' rights versus federalism, representation for big states and small states, what the executive is going to look like, what are the levers of power, and you know, they're hammering this out, and multiple times throughout this process, the thing almost implodes. In fact, at times they say, forget it, let's just leave, it's not working, go back to the Articles of Confederation. And he is the one that eventually gets it over the finish line. They sign it, and he sits at the beginning, at the front of the room, and if you've ever been to Independence Hall, and you just were there, mm -hmm. it is spectacular, and you do feel like these whispers of ghosts of hammering out some of this stuff that is our U.S. Constitution. And I commend you to go there because it, it gives you goosebumps, really. I'm yeah, just not chills, a yeah. history nerd. It, it, I think it does. And, and in the front of the room is this wooden chair that Washington would sit in. And they're hammering through all this stuff, and he would sit in the chair and not say much. Well, the chair had this carving in it, a liberty pole and cap, and then it had a sun on the back of the chair. 
And they're signing the U.S. Constitution after the four months, and Ben Franklin says, you know, I've often looked at that chair, and I've looked at that sun, and wondered whether it was rising or setting. Mm -hmm. Thank God it's rising today. Um, but he doesn't know, they don't know, if it's still going to set, because they still have to get ratification. And that's a process in and of itself that Washington calls a miracle. As you look at the Revolutionary War, the Constitutional Convention, the ratification, and then his presidency, you can't look at that and say that there wasn't some sort of divine intervention, because it was not meant to happen numerous times. And uh, it almost fell apart, and I think that's really instructive as you think about our current time. It's bad, it's partisan, it's divided. But through our history, we've had really dark times, and we've managed to get through. Even at the beginning, when we almost didn't get to the starting line. And then the think about the Civil War, how dark that was. After the Civil War, almost falls apart. The 60s and 70s, the riots, Vietnam, the civil race riots. Think about all we've been through as a country. And in the history of the world, it's actually not that long. We're coming up on 250 years. And, you know, there's generations and generations and three generations removed, and then somebody shook the hand of George Washington. You know, and so I think that that perspective, especially for our generation and younger, kids are missing history. They're really missing out. And one of the reasons I'm doing some of this mm -hmm. is to get it back in there. Yeah. We will, uh, we will look at your, your future endeavor and talk about that soon. But I, I love that you are speaking about what, what our students are missing out on. And uh, I'll bring it back to the 40th president, who in his farewell address encourages young people, if parents aren't talking about history, you should bring it up at the dinner table. And actually, in that 250th uh, address that you have in your hand here, where he spoke at Mount Vernon, he actually says, hey, kids, if you're listening, and I'm paraphrasing, and I certainly won't try to mimic here. Yeah, yeah. But, um, that was he, a poor attempt, by the he way. He says, you know, if, you feel, if George Washington makes you feel small, that's okay. I've got, I'm going to let you on a secret. He makes us all feel small. And you use the word, Brad. You, you said indispensable. And this is, you know, this is what brings him back so often, even though he, you know, he wants to stay at Mount Vernon. He loves his wife. He cherishes his grandchildren. He truly is indispensable. And it makes me think about the fact that we're in a presidential library, a foundation. And there's a real temptation, right, to lionize presidents and, and speak about them in ways that they are, you know, on this pedestal and maybe, you know, never look at their flaws and any, you know, any sort of challenges to their legacy is seen as almost, you know, sacrilege. But you do a really wonderful job of portraying a man who is, you know, he's fighting and governing and that these aren't separate during this point. And he is not this chiseled, you know, stone statue that we see uh, in Washington, D.C. So I wonder um, if you could share maybe what shaped him and, you know, what you learned about these founding fathers who are, you know, not these statues and they're not monolithic. Yeah. Yeah, he, they had faults and mm -hmm. they were not godlike. And the cherry tree story, unfortunately, is not true. Mm -hmm. I was, yeah. I mean, they were just looking for something to make them, you know, <laughs> look good. But... Um, but it, he, he was a man, a normal man, uh, and he was formed earliest by the loss of his father at 11. 
So he had to grow up really fast. Um, and because of that, he was not able, he was not afforded the education that a lot of his uh, peers had, which was to go overseas and be taught in England. Um, he didn't. Uh, he had stepbrothers and a half-stepbrother who they kind of looked after him, uh, but he was educated here, and uh, he wanted to get in the military, and that was tough. And it wasn't until his half-brother died, Lawrence, uh, that he gets an appointment in the uh, Virginia militia, which is the British military, and uh, he gets early assignments that he really screws up. Uh, he really is kind of not a good soldier. He's not really yeah. good at what he's doing. He almost, he's, a lot of people say he started the French and Indian War. Um, you know, I mean, kind of attacked the wrong camp. Um, you know, he just was really bad, but he falls upwards. And he stands by his commander in uh, death. Uh, he gets promoted and along the way learns how to be a soldier. And he is respected for that despite his poor start. And he then inspires soldiers along the way and becomes this, again, an indispensable man, but this group that he's commanding is really lackluster. It's a ragtag group of soldiers, and they are fighting. Think about the audacity it takes to get this militia of group of soldiers to say, we're gonna take on the best military in the world. I'm talking like the Bad News Bears versus the LA Dodgers. <laughs> and let's just pretend the Dodgers made the World Series. Let's, let's, please. I won't talk about <laughs> too that. Too soon, too soon. Oh, it's too soon. Yeah. But think about the, what they're doing here. And they're not well funded, they're not well trained, they're not well um, even clothed. The, the uniforms are falling off them. They have shoes that are uh, falling apart. They have bloody feet in the winter of Valley Forge. And yet, he inspires them saying that you are fighting for liberty. You are fighting for the liberty of this country, and maybe it's because there's no other alternative, and they know what the monarchy is, and they really don't like it, so they keep fighting. Meanwhile, the British are kind of sitting back on their heels and kicking back in Philadelphia in all the rich places that they took over. And the, the revolutionary forces with, commanded by George Washington, win, which is a miracle in any sense of the word. And there are multiple stories about how uh, different things happen that you think, wow, had that not happened. To your bigger point, there were flaws with these men. The founders were not perfect, and they knew it. When they're forming this constitution, you know, they come to a lot of impasses that they're trying to get through, because they know the country has to start. Here is a document that provides liberty, and yet they don't say the word slave. They don't talk about slavery in the document. They say in representation for states that a slave is three-fifths of a man. It's the antithesis of liberty. And those fights, I didn't really know or fully appreciate, are happening in that room in Philadelphia. They are battling about whether that should happen or not. The conclusion is, and there are really heavy fights about it, that the southern states won't sign on to a document if it, doesn't, if it deals with abolishing slavery at that point. They decide in a compromise that they're going to create these amendments. The Bill of Rights are going to be the first thing out of Congress. Those are the first 10 amendments. Obviously, the Constitution's been amended 27 times, but it's a high bar. 
they think that they're going to amend the Constitution to deal with slavery over time. Unfortunately, it was a lot of time, and our country spent decades and decades in the dark history of slavery. But what also I didn't know is that Washington considered that his biggest regret in his life. He later wrote on his deathbed that he thought it was the worst thing that he did as a person, as a, his fault. He had a valet, Bobby Lee, for 20 years, who was very close to him. He became really one of his best friends. And he inherited about 12 slaves from his family. Martha had 122. She was a widow of a very rich person. Uh, so all of them worked on Mount Vernon. And what George Washington did as he was dying, as he said it was his biggest regret, he freed Bobby Lee, and he freed all of the remaining slaves at Mount Vernon after Martha's death and took care of their finances for the rest of their families' lives by the profits made at Mount Vernon. Now, that's something you don't hear about founding fathers. You hear a lot about the slavery part, but you don't hear about them battling with it internally. What I, my purpose here is that Listen, I've got to cover it. I've got to cover different sides of how people think, and I do that fairly on the news. But when I'm writing these books, I throw in a little opinion there. And my opinion is we should embrace, not erase, our history. We should embrace our past and understand <laughs> and understand that there are really dark things that happened in our past, horrible things. But those men dealt with them back there in the environment they were in and really, really fought about it. And then over time, we evolved as a country. We are not a perfect union right now. We can be a more perfect union, but it doesn't help to erase where we've been. We're gonna go someplace else. Let's live where we've been and where we are and try to be better going forward. I love that. That's a... Uh... More from a Reagan Forum with Brett Baer after this message. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward. Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org give. That's reaganfoundation.org give. Now back to a Reagan Forum with Brett Baer. I love that we were never promised perfect, just more perfect. So to be able to learn the lessons from the past is, is really critical. Um, thinking about the, the odds of even being in a room like the Constitutional Convention and winning this war, you know, uh, something that struck me was when he wrote, uh, you, you described him writing back uh, to Martha and saying, uh, they've selected me as the commander in chief. There wouldn't be a president and commander in chief without George Washington. He actually includes his last will and testament as well. That's, you know, that's how severe and serious uh, this commitment was. And uh, I think um, his his role is obviously central to the story. But what I really liked were the diversions in your book uh, with these other players, if you will, uh, other uh, 
you know, major founding fathers in this era. And uh, we often teach history poorly. Like they're all like bobbleheads nodding in agreement that, you know, okay, we're gonna, we're all right. gonna revolt. Okay, we're gonna start the Articles of Confederation. Yeah, okay. It's like the wax yeah. uh, guys down in Disney. You know, they're all doing the, the, just yeah. the talk, the animatronics. Right, but they're all so different. And right. you take this uh, on some really fun diversions. I wonder if there's some interesting or surprising pieces of uh, things that you learned about our founders as you were taking this research journey that you'd like to share with our friends here. Sure, I mean, each one has a story and there's little nuggets. This process, and I've talked about this before, is I'm addicted to it because I think it's, it, it, I learn a lot along the way. Um, briefly, I'll tell you that, and I've told this before, but I, this started with the Eisenhower book, and I went to, I got invited to Augusta National to play golf. I stayed in the Eisenhower cabin. It was the invite of invites, and uh, poured myself a glass of wine or two, and walked around and decided I wanted to learn about President Eisenhower. So I went to Abilene, Kansas, and I went there and said, listen, what can I write about? And they said, well, the farewell address really has not been delved into like it should. So I said, well, how do I do this? What do I do? I'm a reporter. And they said, well, you have to hire a researcher. Duh. And um, I said, okay, let's get the best one possible. And they said, well, we have the best one. And I met her, and her name was Sydney Soderberg. And she was the mayor of the neighboring town of Salina, Kansas. And she came in, and she said, well, that is true. I am the best re researcher. <laughs> That's fantastic. And she said, you know, I, I need to tell you something. I watch your show. I said, wow, fantastic. That's even better. And she said, I like it. I said, okay, we're making progress. She said, but I need to know, you to know that I am a true blue Kansas Democrat. And I said, that is great because I am a news reporter trying to write his first history book. And uh, we established this relationship. And that began this amazing journey where she goes into national archives and different places and plants there for six months at a time and not, digs out these tre this treasure trove of history nuggets that then become pieces of a quilt that we stitch together with my co-author Catherine Whitney and I. We bounce back and forth and then try to create this actual putting you in the room and meeting these characters, to your point. And um, this one really opened the eyes for me uh, of different exchanges. The relationship that George Washington has, he was actually closest to Henry Knox, mm -hmm. his Secretary of War. Uh, when you saw, if you saw the, the musical Hamilton where Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton are at each other, that's all true. That, they hated each other. <laughs> and they were trying to one-up each other, and they were trying to undermine each other, and yet he put them on the cabinet as Secretary of Treasury, Secretary of State. His Attorney General is Edmund Randolph. Uh, he's kind of a non-player, but he's in the mix because they're all really close to advisors to Washington. Remember, this is all coming off the top of his head. This is not laid out. You know, he's making it up as he goes along on the executive stuff. He moves to, to New York, the capital, uh, and starts as the first American president, unanimously elected. And uh, it's chaos because all of the people say, I want to go see the new president. This is awesome. We have a great country. Let's go. So people just show up and say, hi, I'd like to see the president. They don't even have a it's, schedule. No, there's no schedule. It was just yeah. walk in. 
And so it was chaotic. It was like Grand Central Station. And Martha had stayed back in Mar Mount Vernon to watch over her grandchildren. Well, he is, one of the things you learn is the relationship between George Washington and Martha is tremendously close. He, she is probably one of his closest advisors. He is death, head over heels in love with her. We would know more about the depth of that love if Martha Washington hadn't burned their correspondence after his death, but... A common practice amongst the women of that era. At the era. With the exception of uh, John Adams, I think. Abigail Adams is the only wife of a founding father who kept their course. Because right? Mrs. Adams really wanted to show how yeah. he was heartfelt, not always intellectually, uh, you know. Godlike. Highbrow, yeah. 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 But anyway, Martha and George are really, really close. He goes to New York. She's not there with him. He's falling apart. It's chaotic. And he says, I need Martha here. So he turns to his, his aide, Tobias Lear, and he says, we have to figure out a way to get Martha up here. And he says, she loves seafood. That's right. <laughs> I need you to draft a letter through our nephew to tell Mrs. Washington that we serve seafood all the time. And oysters, so the, to be specific, Oysters right? and yeah. shrimp on the table. So he writes this letter. He says, Mrs. Washington, it's a, a wonderful spread of oysters and shrimp almost every night here in New York, and they don't go untouched. Suddenly, Martha Washington ends up there about five days later. Um, so seafood saved the day of the United States of America in mm -hmm. its early days. But it's little things like that, little stories about the, the folks that um, I think really makes it juicy in the read. That's a, yeah, they're, they're fun little diversions, but I think it does help us realize that when we're going through these problems that we feel are so vast, these were humans as well. Um, your book has the word fragile in it, which makes us very concerned, I imagine, if you're in the audience here today. And obviously, the war lasted eight years, and how we lasted eight years in one, as you said, is completely confounding and a miracle. And the Articles of Confederation were pretty loose and not, uh, not organized. And you know, one takeaway I had was, you know, we, we talk about how fragile we were back then, but there were a million inflection points, as you pointed out, where all of this that we so love, that we so cherish, could not have existed. So nothing about this country was certain. And I, um, what, what do you think were some moments um, that maybe we take for granted that were instrumental in, in the survival of our young republic? Well, I think that we have to remember that um, the alternative was never really, has never been as present as it was for them. In other words, the alternative of a monarchy, the alternative of not controlling your own destiny. Mm. It was staring them in the face because they saw it in their lifetime. We haven't seen it. You know, every one of these presidents has some line that you have to fight for the republic. You have to fight to, to hold it together. We still today have to fight. Uh, Grant said it's a constant battle because we're one step away from losing it. And I do think that that is a part of the story that we have to remember that we can't sleep on our laurels. We can't say this is all kind of all done. We've got to work at it. You know, the peaceful transfer of power, it's only not happened twice in our history. Um, it eventually happened, but it's only been challenged twice in our history. That's one of the best things George Washington did 
was that peaceful transfer of power. And we've got to make sure as a country that we remember about how crucial that all is. Um, I do think that, again, to read from my Reagan, which is, I'm apt to we, do. We welcome that here. <laughs> um, he had this, a beautiful end to his farewell address, mm. where he said, ours was the first revolution in the history of mankind that truly reversed the course of government with the three little words, we the people. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. We the people are the driver. The government is the car. And we decide where it should go and by what route and how fast. Almost all of the world's constitutions are documents in which governments tell the people what their privileges are. Our constitution is a document in which we the people tell the government what it is allowed to do. We the people are free. This belief has been the underlying basis for everything I've tried to do these past eight years. Think about we the people, because we the people are the ones who control this whole operation. And sometimes I think we the people forget that. And uh, it's not the other way around. So it, it really is, as I cover Washington, it is easy to get cynical. It's easy to say, man, this place is crazy. <laughs> and you know, turn around and say this is not worth spending the time. But I do think there are good people up there on both sides of the aisle trying to do good things. They just have to be told by you how to drive the car and what route to take and what they're allowed to do and not allowed to do. Not the other way around. There you go. Love that. I wanna make sure we have time for me to read some of the uh, audience submitted questions. So maybe I'll skip a few to this concept of leadership. And um, you know, we're here at the house that Ronald Reagan built, the house of the great communicator, and all of our education work centers around cultivating that next generation of citizen leaders, answering President Reagan's call for an informed patriotism. And it was hard you know, while reading your book not to make comparisons. And uh, President George Washington is so often silent, as you point out, and President Reagan is the great communicator. So it just struck me there's just so many different ways to lead, and you've obviously done these deep dives of several leaders, and I wonder if um, you, know, you have any reflections about their service and how you, know, how you look to perhaps communicate different ways of leadership to this next generation yourself. Yeah, I think communicating your thoughts, what you value is important, is number one. And obviously Reagan did that better than arguably any president uh, about articulating it. Some presidents are better at communicating the other, than others. All of them have this service that is about putting America first before themselves. It seems that while they're all about you know, the next election and you want to get elected and all the politics of that, in essence, their decision is about putting the country first when push comes to shove and when they're backed into a corner with a tough decision. And I think that that is what drives a lot of these leaders. The thread through all, all these books is that they're always working to try to think what is best for America in the big picture. Different scenarios. Uh, each one of the presidents that I've written about worked across the aisle in one way or another uh, to try to get big things done. Dwight D. Eisenhower arguably was our most bipartisan president. 
working with Lyndon B. Johnson and Sam Rayburn, doing really big pieces of legislation, like the interstate highway system we drive on today and other big things that they fought about, but ended up, like Washington, making it through the dissent to get to the union. Well, I did have a second part of the question, which oh. is about how you are perhaps uh, trying to reach the next generation. Yes. So this book, this is a graphic novel that comes out November 12th. Now, this is the first one of these that I've done, but I thought it would be really fun, and it kind of sneaks in the history. It's called The History Club, Duel Across Time, and it's about an eighth-grade history class that goes back in time to solve pieces of history that are being tweaked and changed by this evil character called the History Twister. But in this, in this, which is kind of like a comic book, uh, you get inferred and kind of, they learn history sneakily. You know, it's actual history that um, is actually really cool. I had a lot of fun working with this, this illustrator and um, coming up with the, the thought process. Anyway, November 12th, it comes out, and it's for like 8 to 14. 8 to 14. Sounds like a good Christmas present. Yeah, yeah. For your kids, your and grandkids, work, right? They work great together. Right? Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> Show it again now. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to do my best to decipher handwriting here. And uh, I shuffle to this question, which asks, lovely handwriting, what would Washington think about the political environment in the U.S. today, specifically regarding our political parties? So maybe diving into those factions again, yeah. kind of placing yourself in the general's uh, mindset. Well, I think he would say, I told you so. <laughs> um, here it is consuming. Uh, I think, like I said from the beginning, I think these, these early guys knew that it was going to be a battle and uh, they knew that over time, each generation was gonna have their own challenges about how to fight it and how it looked. I'm sure he wouldn't be surprised uh, that we're as divided as we are, um, but I think the fact that the US Constitution over all this time has remained intact, it hasn't been amended you know, beyond the 27 times. I'll tell you really quickly, at the end of the book, there's this study by the National Constitution Center, and it's just a couple years ago, and they say to these three sets of scholars, all right, get together, and the scholars are libertarian scholars, conservative scholars, and progressive scholars. It sounds like they all go into a bar and, <laughs> no, but it's really true. They, this was they a go study. into the National Constitution Center. Yes. yes, and so it's a real study, and they are well-respected in each one of their ideological fields. And so they say to these scholars, I want you to rip up the Constitution and start over and come up with a new one. So they set out for three weeks to do this. It ends up taking about a month. And all three of the groups come back to the same document that was hammered out in 1787. Now, all three of them have suggestions. This is true, and I'm not making it up. The libertarian group comes back and says, we want every page to end with, and we mean it. <laughs> <laughs> True. The conservative group says the executive portion needs to be more clearly defined because executive orders are out of control. As you know, executive orders, presidents can write them. They kind of go around Congress. Remember, President Obama said, I have a pen and a phone. 
Um, you know, Washington wrote eight executive orders. FDR wrote 3,216 in the New Deal. At this point, President Biden has had 150 executive orders. But they do go around Congress. And that's not even to add the signing statements that kind of adjust what Congress passes. But the next administration, oftentimes, as happened with this administration, exactly did the opposite executive order as the last. So that's what the conservatives would like to change. The progressive group says they need to change the electoral college and do a ranked choice election system to change that. All of the groups think that the uh, term limits for the Supreme Court should be at 18 years, not lifetime, so that you can avoid the politics of you know, a Supreme Court justice waiting until a Democrat or Republican gets in office and then retires, or, or if you know, the big to-do that has become a political process. Um, that's a recommendation all three recommended. But in essence, they all went back to that same document. Now think about that. After all this time, all these people talking about it, and those guys hammered that out in that room four months in the sweaty Philadelphia. Pretty amazing. Pretty brilliant. Pretty amazing. Yeah. And because we can't avoid politics, our next question, what would George Washington think of Donald Trump? It says thank you as and well. So were these? Yeah. They're polite. Oh, is it very polite. Yeah. Thank you for that. Well, I know what Donald Trump thinks of George Washington. I tell you what. He is a fantastic, huge president. He does not have as good a poll numbers as your number one president. I don't get to do that on the show. We're glad to be of service here. Yeah, I don't get to do that on the show that much. Um, listen, I think that there are elements of strength in leadership decision-making that George Washington would, would value. I think that he uh, would have problems, and the biggest problem about January 6th, um, as that he set you know, that stipulation about peaceful transfer of power. Not that you know, it's all decided about how that all is gonna fall out, um, but I think that, um, that you, know, you look at the president's policies, and you look at what people looked at during that administration on this side of the paper. And you look at January 6th and some of the things that he says and some of the things that are happening now and the reaction, social media, on this side of the paper. Now, it depends on how you look at it. And you know, we have to cover it fairly. And, and I think that we do. Um, I think that it's gonna be a fascinating election that we don't know how it's going to come out on either side. At the beginning of this process, I really didn't think that either leader of the party was going to be the nominee. And as we get closer and closer, it does feel like both men are going to be the nominees, which I think leads to a whole bunch of questions um, about how you the people, we the people, determine all that and what we think about it. Um, so I joke about the, you know, the, the, the um, him saying about Washington, but I think he has used that, you know, like, you couldn't get Washington, couldn't get to sanctimonious <laughs> elected, okay? Um, 
but it's, uh, it's fun to think about. Well, the next, uh, the next audience member has done their homework. So after your visit to the Middle East and your two interviews with the Saudi prince and the Israeli prime minister, I heard that your interviews would be the reason or catalyst for bringing the two closer than ever to a peace agreement. With the attack on Israel, do you feel that agreement will happen soon or be sadly postponed? Yeah, I think that's fascinating. Um, it really was a, a fascinating time. I'll briefly tell the story. I've been working on getting an interview with um, uh, the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman MBS uh, for a long time, thinking that he was going to be the center of uh, the Middle East for a long time. He's 38 years old. He's obviously had many controversial things, the Khashoggi uh, incident, the 9-11 the reaction, all of those things. And I wanted to ask that, but also about the future of the Middle East. So I've been working it for a long time, and I finally got the interview and uh, with the contingency that I could ask whatever I wanted to ask, and uh, there wouldn't be any stipulations. So I went over, and... Uh, we originally were told that the interview was going to be in Arabic, so we set up a simultaneous translator. And I had him in a room, in a box, during the, and I had an IFB in my ear, ready for the Arabic to, to listen. And I asked the first question, and he answered it in English. And I, answered the I asked the second question, and he answered it in English. <laughs> I said, wow, this is going to be in English. Um, and it was. And it was fascinating. And I asked all those things, about those controversial things, and I also asked about the normalization efforts with Israel. There was a report that it was falling apart, and he said, no, no, it's not. In fact, we're getting closer every day, and it could change the face of the Middle East. Mm -hmm. I asked some more specific questions, and the interview went on on a number of different topics. You may have seen it. It's online if you haven't. Uh, as the camera cut off, he said, Brett, I need you to know that this is going to happen, and we are really, really close, and this will change everything. Every country in this region will work differently. It will change how the Middle East works forever. And I said, Your Royal Highness, thank you very much. I get to the airport to go back to Riyadh. I was in, um, in the, uh, along the Red Sea. And I get to the airport to go to Riyadh, and I get a call from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who says, I've seen the interview. I need you to come interview me so I can respond. I'm on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly in New York. So I rework my plane flight. I fly to New York. I land at 8.30 in the morning. I sit down with the Israeli Prime Minister at 11.30 a.m. And I start by asking, you saw this interview. What's your response, Mr. Prime Minister? And he says, in the words of a very smart man in the Middle East, we're getting closer every day, and it will change the face of the Middle East. That camera cuts off after a lot of questions about the trouble he's in and politically and et cetera, et cetera. And he says, no, Brett, I need you to know this. It's going to change everything in the Middle East, and we are on the finish line. This is it. And I'm going to you know, essentially grab the brass ring. And at that moment, I thought, this is quite something. I mean, he essentially called so that he could talk to MBS over the television you know, in this moment. So I was working to set up an interview with Mahmoud Abbas in the West Bank. And we were down the road on doing that. And then October 7th happened. Now, I have since talked to all players. 
And believe it or not, even in this moment, when we don't know what's going to happen with Israel going into the ground in Gaza and how the Arab street already is reacting, but how it will react even more when that intensifies, even in this moment, both sides are saying, we are still hopeful that this is going to be worked out in the long run. Now, we'll see. Maybe that is rose-colored glasses. But to hear both leaders talk about it, both on camera and off camera, I came away thinking, this could be a game changer for the whole region. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. We, we certainly all need a dose of hope right now, right? There is a question addressed. Um, we'll, we'll say the most hopeful one for last, but Brad, did Washington's character have any significant, quote, human flaws? And you spoke a little bit about that, but perhaps uh, you can respond uh, to maybe that question or other founders as well? Yeah, um, let's see. I think the interesting thing was we didn't know a lot about his childhood um, and he wasn't that much of a troublemaker. He did like women though, as a teenager yes. and an, a young man. And this is from a student age 17. Oh, there you go. LJ Rousseau. And he did like the ladies and he had his heart broken a couple times and he wrote a poem about being heartbroken. So he used the poem to express his dismay that he was uh, kind of turned down by this one, one young lady. Uh, but that led soon thereafter to meeting Martha. And he fell head over heels right away with what he called his pocket Venus, which is a short, beautiful person. And the ladies loved him as well. Correct? They did. Yeah, I mean, that. yeah, he was a tall drink of water. <laughs> we'll, we'll put that in the, next, in the biography. All right. Well, this is, uh, this is our favorite question. You gave us a brief update at the beginning. But the question is, how is your wonderful son, if you don't mind giving oh, us that's an nice. update? So yeah, I think as I said, he's, uh, so he's had four open heart surgeries and 10 angioplasties. He is six, four and a half. I cut him a half, uh, but he's six, four and a half. And he plays on the golf team. Uh, he has beaten his dad, unfortunately, a couple times, which is a major development. And, um, and I'm coming to grips with it. It's the best thing ever and the worst thing ever. Um, but he is uh, doing well. And his brother, who's 13, is doing great. Uh, and so the family is uh, fantastic. So we are um, very blessed. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to get him into history. They don't watch TV. They don't watch TV, they watch on the phone. So the only way they know I did something is if I post it on Instagram. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they but, watch that, that's but they for don't, sure. they, I'm trying to get them back on uh, regular TV. But everybody's doing great, thank you for asking. So final parting words, oh yes. Final parting words for us. A little piece of advice. How do we as Americans continue to rescue the Constitution? I think we have to keep learning. And I suggest, and this is how I've been learning, is this process of going back and digging in. I'm, Sidney Soderbergh and Catherine Whitney and I are doing the work for you. Uh, you just have to read it or listen to it. And I think it really does help to look about where we've been because to look backwards to where we've been helps us to look where we're gonna go. I know that sounds cliche, but I do see a lot of it um, every time I do one of these things, like, oh, I'm dealing with this now. And for me, as an anchor, it does give me a perspective to be able to tap into 
when I'm talking about something, not only the times that I've covered you know, the White House or the Pentagon or the things that I've covered personally, but the things that I've covered as this reporter of history, um, able to tap into some of that as an anchor. So I appreciate you reading it. Thank you for watching, and uh, thank you for being here. I'm happy to sign as many books as you want to buy. All right. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much, Brett. Get yourself a copy of To Rescue the Constitution and The History Club. All right. In addition to the program from October 2023, every program we've held with Brett can be watched on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Foundation. Signed copies of To Rescue the Constitution can be purchased through the Reagan Library Museum Store. Every purchase you make from our catalog, website, or museum store is a critical component to our success. In short, your purchase supports our efforts to extend the legacy of President Ronald Reagan. Purchases can be made at reaganlibrary.com store. Thank you for listening. For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Until next week, thanks for listening. God bless you. Don't forget to subscribe to a Reagan Forum podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of A Reagan Forum come out every Thursday. Like what you hear? Check out our Words to Live By podcast, featuring radio addresses and speeches Ronald Reagan delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. New episodes drop every Tuesday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook at Ronald Reagan on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher.